Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, Come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. This is Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and can be found on page 1202. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses' faith was was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Thank you, Abby and Georgie. Please keep that passage in Hebrews open. Hebrews chapter 3, page 1202. So you may remember in the evening services back in January, in a bit of February, I think, we did Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. And then we've been asking big questions for the last few weeks. We're coming back to Hebrews for a a little chunk more, starting in chapter 3 this evening. So if you've got that open, um, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us. And we thank you for the amazing things that you have done for us. And we pray that you would help us to fix our thoughts on you right now. pray this for your glory. Amen. Well, you may remember Jesus once told a story about a man who went out to sow seed. And some of it fell on the path and the birds ate that up. Some of it fell on rocky soil. And it grew quickly before it withered in the sun because it didn't have a a proper root. Some fell among the thorns and that grew for a time, but then it got choked. And then some fell on good soil and that bore an amazingly large crop. And that was a picture of what happens whenever Jesus's word goes out. And it should make us think every time we hear that story, Lord, please make me like good soil. It might also scare us a bit as well, 
Because for two of the cases, the rocky soil and the thorny soil, for a while, things look okay. The seed takes and it begins to grow. And for the rocky soil, it it begins to grow quite quickly. And that's a bit scary. Something that looks like it's going well turns out not to be the real deal. And we might look at ourselves and think, well, will that be me? Because I think I'm going all right. I think I'm going all right with Jesus. How do I know, really? Or we look at people we love, people in our family, maybe, and they seem to be following Jesus right now, but are they going to make it through to the end, through to the prize? And that's the kind of concern which, when we had Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 open, we saw that the writer had there. That he's, the people he's writing to, they looked like they're going well, but are they going to make it? They seem at risk, or he seems worried that they might drift. Whether that's because people are making their lives hard for being a Christian, whether it's because they're just getting a bit tempted to go back to old religious ways, or whether it's just because they're getting a bit bored and it's no longer novel. We don't know. But there is this concern that here we have a group of Christians who look like they're the real deal, but will they fall away? When the sun shines, would it actually be that their root proves shallow? And we might look around here tonight and see all sorts of reasons to be encouraged. It's fantastic, isn't it, to have you guys in TNG here with us and leading the service. And it's not just you're here when we have these services, you're coming each week, and that's fantastic. But the writer to the Hebrews might say, yeah, but what's going to happen when you leave home? And you really have to decide for yourself, are you going to keep going with Jesus? What's going to happen when that wonderful person comes into your life? who looks like a potential husband or wife, but they're not a Christian and they lead you away from Jesus. What's going to happen in those instances? Or we might just look around generally and and say, it's great, isn't it, that we have all these people who come to All Saints week by week and for the most part receive Bible teaching without grumbling about it. But the writer to the Hebrews might say, yeah, but what's going to happen when they move town? And they'd have to find a church like that again. What's going to happen when life gets hard? What's going to happen when other members of their family who were coming along to church slacken off? What's going to happen when temptation to infidelity comes along? And so on and so on. How do we know we're not, in fact, a gathering of rocky soil hearts? And that actually this is just a comfortable place for us to be. And a numerically above average congregation for this kind of village with a warmer than average building, with better than average coffee, I would say, as a tea drinker, uh, with, with people of above average wealth. And it's just a comfortable place to be. And the sun comes out and actually the roots will be shown to be shallow. How do we know that that's not us? Well, we know by how we respond to a passage like the one we've just had read out from Hebrews 3. 
Because the writer to the Hebrews clearly has all these kind of concerns, but he's not doom and gloom about it. He's more like the coach at the side of the athletics track, shouting out encouragements to remind the athletes to keep doing the basics, to keep putting one foot in front of the other, to keep their eyes on the finishing line. And he's shouting out those encouragements. And the coach, the writer to the Hebrews, he calls out to us tonight as we're running that race, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. And those who hear that and think, yes, this is what I need to do. It's basic, but I just need to keep keep doing this, keep fixing my thoughts on Jesus. They're the ones that show that they are, in fact, good soil. Fix your thoughts on Jesus and keep fixing your thoughts on Jesus. And wherever you head next in life, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And whatever change comes along, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And if you're worried about someone else and how they're going, do whatever you can to encourage them to fix their thoughts on Jesus. It's actually a great point for Trinity Sunday. Do you know it's Trinity Sunday? To fix our thoughts on Jesus. Maybe you think, oh, that's not a great point for Trinity Sunday. You wouldn't have the doctrine of the Trinity if the early church hadn't had their thoughts fixed on Jesus. Jesus comes along and does all that he does, dies, rises, goes back to heaven, the Holy Spirit comes, and the early church spends the next few hundred years saying, okay, what just happened? How do we explain that? How do we talk about it? Because their eyes were fixed on Jesus and it changed everything. And that's where the doctrine of the Trinity came from. That's an aside. That wasn't even in here. So, one point tonight. You know it already. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. And this is where it's worth saying. And it's obvious, okay? This is so blindingly obvious you think, why bother saying it? You've got to focus on the real Jesus which is the Jesus we see here in the Bible, the the Jesus, the writer to the Hebrews says, we acknowledge. And it's obvious to say that, isn't it? So obvious, you've got to focus on the real Jesus, but so easy to go wrong on that. Because if a bunch of people you like, you might like people for for varying reasons. You might just like people who look a bit trendy. You might look like people who, who look a bit nerdy and intelligent. Um, whatever reason you like people, if a bunch of people you like says to you, this is what Jesus is like, you start thinking, ah, so that's what Jesus is like. But he might not be. That might not be the real Jesus. And you, and you go on and you, you fix your thoughts on that person, but you're fixing your thoughts on fantasy Jesus. You read books about fantasy Jesus and you talk about how much you love him, but it does you no good at all. You need to look at this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus whom the writer to the Hebrews says we acknowledge in verse 1 there. Not any other. We've got to see it from here. So who is he from here and just from the passage we're looking at this evening? Well, in verse 1 there, right at the end, He's our apostle and high priest. Jesus is our apostle and high priest. Fix your thoughts on that for a moment. That's a great phrase. Let's just unpack it. An apostle is someone who is sent. 
Right? Someone sent by someone else. At which Jesus was. He was sent from God. He was sent to be the supreme revelation of God. We thought about that in the first verses of Hebrews. The one who shows us who God is. And he was sent to do a job. To rescue us. To bring us back to God. Because if left to ourselves... Well, our thoughts don't fix in helpful directions. We fix our thoughts in all sorts of other things and directions that take us away from God, which means taking us away from life. It's like, naturally, we're all just like lemmings, or at least the popular idea of lemmings, and you plonk us down on the ground, and this way leads to life and God, right? And that way leads to the cliff edge of destruction. And no matter where you put us down and what direction we're pointing in, naturally we just all end up somehow managing to go this way. We think, oh, yeah, that's good. It looks good over there. And we head off towards the cliff edge. And you can pick us up. Say, no, don't go that way. Put us back down here again. Point us in the direction again. And we turn around that way. And we think, oh, it's so good over there. Look at that view. Doesn't that look so wonderful? That's where I'm going to flourish. Okay, that's what we're like. Always heading away from God, which is always heading away from life. So we needed Jesus to come to rescue us. As we saw in chapter two, to be the pioneer of a new humanity that actually goes in the right direction. To be our pioneer and then to lead many sons and daughters to glory. Verse 10 of chapter 2. That's what he was sent to do. He's our apostle. And then he's our high priest. Now what did the high priest do in the Old Testament? Well, he and all the other priests, they mediated between God and people. He and all the other priests, they would bring sacrifices Day after day, animals which were killed to acknowledge that if we are to come back to God, a price needs to be paid for what we've done, a penalty. Their lives for our lives, their blood for our blood. And then supremely on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest goes into the most holy place in the temple where no one else is allowed to go at any other time taking the blood of a sacrifice to make that reconciliation between God and people. What did he do next after he'd done that? He goes into the most holy place, as it were, into the presence of God for a bit. What does he do next? He comes back again. He has to come back again because there's going to be more sin of his own, as well as for the people. And there's going to need to be more sacrifice. There's going to need to be more blood. What did Jesus do? Our great high priest, after he'd made sacrifice for our sins on the cross and went back into the full presence of God in heaven, what did he do? He stayed there. He sat down. Verse 3 of chapter 1, a human being has gone into the presence of God and stayed there and sat down. And Hebrews says he's our pioneer. 
as we saw in chapter 2. So he's apostle and high priest. Apostle sent from God to humanity, actually to share in our humanity, and then high priest to go back from humanity to God as a human and stay there. So that we now have this heavenly calling, as verse 1 says, to follow him. Now you're welcome to throw your lot in with some other religion if you really want to as a way to get back to God. But I want to say, well, I'm with that guy who's gone into heaven and has stayed there. That, that's, that seems like the ticket to follow, doesn't it? Verse 2, he was faithful to the one who appointed him. That is, he did what God gave him to do. He was faithful. He did it. You can trust that what he has done for you is effective. And if you fix your thoughts on following him, he will get you to glory. And then that brings us into all this stuff about Moses. And you may have thought, well, what's that doing there, really? Why why, why do we need to know about Moses at this point? I think it's doing two things. Number one, if you're ever tempted to think, well, Jesus is all very well, but I probably need to add some extra religious stuff to him if I'm, if I'm really going to get on with my um, relationship with God. Hebrews would say, what are you doing? Moses and the law and all the other Old Testament stuff that Hebrews is going to mention, it was all pointing to Jesus. It was fulfilled in him. So don't ever treat those things as though they are the thing that they're pointing to. They're not. They're pointing to Jesus. So if religious things help you in pointing you to Jesus, fair enough. But don't ever let anything else become the main thing. That's a disaster. So that's one thing I think uh, these sort of verses are doing. But also, a second thing. And that is, don't ever think Hebrews gets us to look at Moses or whoever else from the Old Testament it gets us to look at in order to make us think, well, Jesus is great because Moses was rubbish. It's not doing that. Rather, it's getting us to think, actually, Moses, what he did, what was spoken of about him, that was pretty special. Actually, that was quite awesome. And Jesus is even better than that. He's in a different category. So that all this Old Testament stuff, all this stuff about Moses here, actually becomes a great tool to help us to fix our eyes, to fix our thoughts on Jesus. Hebrews, as a book, isn't a catalogue of reasons to put your Old Testaments down and never open them again. Hebrews is a bunch of reasons to pick your Old Testament up and to really get into it, because it will help you to fix your thoughts on Jesus. And you see how this works here, just with these few verses. So we read Numbers 12, and we saw... Miriam and Aaron grumbling about Moses and God responding to that. And we saw how worthy of honour Moses is. Because God honoured Moses when he said these words about him. He is faithful in all my house. You see how that was quoted in that passage in Hebrews. When he said, look, with Moses, I speak face to face. Don't do that with anyone else. With Moses, I speak face to face. When the passage says, 
Moses was a humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. That is amazing. Can you get a greater commendation than that? Coming from God. Is there any other person you can think of in history of whom God has said in such a way, how dare you disrespect him? Let me tell you something about Moses. Can you think of anyone who received such a commendation, such honor before others from God? I can't. Not until, say, 1,500 years later, when we hear that Peter and James and John went up a mountain with Jesus and Jesus' appearance was changed before them, and you see Moses and Elijah there talking with Jesus, and suddenly there's a cloud and the voice from the cloud, Moses is there, says nothing about Moses, but says of Jesus, this is my son. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. We're meant to go to Numbers 12 and then come to Jesus and say, wow, Moses, that was awesome. But Jesus, this is a different category. This is a different league. And so Hebrews goes on. Jesus was faithful in the task he'd been appointed to. Just as Moses was faithful in his, and you start to think, oh, well, what was that task then? You pause on that for a moment. What was Moses' task? Well, maybe you, you remember that God appeared to him in a burning bush on a mountain to send him to Egypt to rescue his people, to bring them back to that mountain to worship God. That's pretty amazing. Jesus' task Apostle and high priest sent from heaven to come and rescue God's people, to bring them back to heaven. It's a different category, isn't it? Verse 3, you have this house. Keep having that word through this passage. Verse 6 makes it clear the house is God's people. It's us Christians collectively together. The house is God's people. Moses Well, he's a part of the house. Of course he is. Jesus is the builder of the house. Verse 5, Moses was faithful as a servant. It's quoting the words from Numbers 12. That is some commendation. Who doesn't want to hear that? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Moses is faithful as a servant. Jesus, he's faithful as the son. Moses is in God's house. Jesus is over God's house. Moses bears witness, it says, to what would be spoken by God in the future. Jesus is what would be spoken by God in the future. See, do you see how just that one small passage from the Old Testament has helped us to fix our thoughts on Jesus and to fuel our love for him? And we'll see it again and again in Hebrews, going back to the Old Testament And it fills out our vision of Jesus. And our hearts are full of adoration. Do you read your Old Testaments? Do you know your Old Testament? It really helps to fix your thoughts on Jesus and to love him more. So that's who we're fixing our thoughts on. 
on Jesus. But I just want to, as we close, pause for a moment to consider fix your thoughts. Okay, we've talked about Jesus. What does it really mean to fix your thoughts as we close? Because you can see, and as we've been going through this, you can see, this is to do with our minds, our brains. It's not about emptying our heads. This is to do with effort. It will involve effort to fix our thoughts on Jesus. So if, take an example, you sit through a sermon, maybe even this sermon, and you think, this just feels like too much hard work to listen. Don't simply blame me or whoever's preaching. All right? I don't think I'm boring, but people who are accustomed to speaking for 25 minutes at a time generally don't think they're boring. If I am, the real question is this. At the start of the sermon, before you even know how interesting it's going to be, are you intent on fixing your thoughts on Jesus? That's the real question. It's going to take effort. Sometimes it will be harder work than other times. Are you intent on fixing your thoughts on Jesus? Because if you are, and the preacher does an honest attempt at opening the Bible and showing you Jesus... Well, you can be blessed by even the most dreadfully boring of sermons. Fixing our thoughts implies effort. It involves discipline. Discipline to open our Bibles each day. Discipline to meditate on God's word. You don't often say meditate. Perhaps that doesn't mean emptying your head, meditation. It means taking the time to get something into your head, which... Maybe that involves you have a Bible passage, you have a verse, take it for a jog or a run or or, or a walk. Something that just gives you the time to get into your head. But that's effort to do that. It's effort to read books that help fix our thoughts on Jesus. It's it's effort to talk with other people and, and work things out together and to wrestle with things as you really try to know him better. And... Fixing our thoughts on Jesus is going to involve church. As a final point, just to highlight again that word that kept coming up in those six verses in Hebrews. House. Kept coming up, didn't it? House. House. We are his house. Verse six. Christians, together, we are the house. It's Jesus' work, building this house. And how vital church family is for keeping your thoughts fixed on Jesus. How vital. I help you and you help me. Because we really are wandering into parched spiritual lands when we stop coming to church. And if anyone ever wonders, well, I'm not sure what I should be really doing in this church. I'm not sure I've got something that I really do. Or even get to a stage of life and you think, I'm not even sure what I'm able to do in this church anymore. How about this? Helping one another fix our thoughts on Jesus. Turning up with a view to, who am I going to encourage and spur on today? Rather than, is it going to be any good for me? Helping one another to fix our thoughts on Jesus. It's sometimes easy to be so focused on good things, like growing the church, that you can forget to be the church in that sense. And helping one another 
fix our thoughts on Jesus. You just look at verse 6. How helpful church family is to you to help you hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. It is much easier to glory in our hope together, isn't it? Than just to try and do it on your own every day. To glory in our hope together. You take one obvious example when we sing, when we meet together, and glory in our hope. How helpful that is to us. Oh, I'm not going to sing this song. I don't like it. I don't know why they picked that one. I don't know it. No! I don't know this song, but I'm going to sing it to encourage my brothers and sisters to fix their thoughts on Jesus and glory in our shared hope, which may be a better country in which that kind of music doesn't exist anymore or I actually like it. Whatever. But I'm going to help my brothers and sisters. Glory in our shared hope. That's one example. Many, many others in which church family does this. So where are your thoughts fixed? Where were they fixed as you arrived this evening? Just generally in your life at the moment. Grades? Success? End of exams? Work? A sin that has hold of you? Where are they fixed? And what are you going to do What are you going to do? We had the sluggard in the all-age service a couple of weeks ago. The sluggard listens to sermons and says, yes, I agree entirely, and I will do that tomorrow after a bit of sleep. Never gets onto it. What are we going to do in our lives now to help ourselves fix our thoughts on Jesus? He came from glory to take us back. And those who prove to be the real deal, they just keep up with the basics. They keep their thoughts fixed on him. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, you are our apostle our great high priest you came to rescue us and to bring many sons and daughters to glory and that's where we want to be we want to follow you and we pray that you would help us to keep our thoughts focused on you help us to do that this week Help us to do it when we are on our own. But help us to, as a church family, really spur one another on. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.